Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there, it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedellium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Father, we need you. We need your word. And we need to know what it is that you want to tell us, God. What, what a blessing it is that you've spoken to us. We need to pay attention to what you've told us. Use your word from Genesis 2 to help us understand what you want us to know and where we ought to go to find life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one interesting thing about the Bible is that it offers two creation accounts back to back. Did you guys notice that? Didn't we just finish that whole creation story last week? And now here we are. And okay, rewind, we're starting over. Why would God do that? There, there are many ways that people might answer this question, you know, um, but, but there, here's one that I think is central. The first creation account in Genesis 1, spilling over into chapter 2 a little bit, but the first creation account in Genesis 1, it, it tells us something that we need to know about God. What does it tell us? It tells us that he is Elohim, that's the name given for God, and, and this, is, this is a name that means creator God. And so Genesis 1 is here to tell us that God is the creator and sustainer of everything. Where there was chaos, he organized it. Where there was nothing, he made something. We learned about that in Genesis 1. And the Jews leaving Egypt, they were the original audience for this book, um, the, the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch are often called the first or the five books of Moses. You know, I've got a German friend and, and he grew up not reading Genesis, but the first book of Moses. That's what they called it. Um, so the Jews they, leaving Egypt, they first heard these stories in the desert. 
That's where these came from when they were wandering. If you don't know what I'm talking about there, just hang on. We'll get there really soon. But, but they needed to know this, that God was Elohim, the creator and sustainer of everything, because they had just spent 430 years in a culture that, they, that had many, many gods. And here they are wandering in the wilderness. They were often missing the life that they left. That's what they were usually complaining about. Hey, we had steak in Egypt. Why am I eating manna every day here? That kind of stuff. They were missing the life they left and they were doubting God's goodness. But God wanted them to know that if Egypt spoke of a God in the sun, Elohim was the God who made the sun. If Egypt spoke of a God in the waters, he was the God who made the waters. And so this is a God who made the world and shaped the world and ordered the world, and he can control the world for his people's good. That's why he gave us one creation account in Genesis 1. It was all about the creator God and what that means to us, that he's the creator God who is in control of his creation. We need to know this too today. That's why we still read it. We need to know that our God can make something out of nothing and that he can turn chaos into order. He can make it beautiful. But now comes chapter two. This is the second account of creation. And this account of creation, it doesn't focus so much on God's power to create and organize chaos. Instead, the account we're going to begin today, it tells us more about the relationship God has with mankind and the relationship that God gave mankind with the earth. How does God relate to us and how do we relate to the creation? That's kind of what Genesis 2 is more about. In short, Genesis 1 is about what God made and Genesis 2 is about what God made us for. So here's our outline for the sermon today. Our message today has three points. The first, God made a man. The second, God made a garden. And the third, God made a covenant. God made a man, God made a garden, God made a covenant. Here's what it says in verses four and five. It says, at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. What a weird intro, <laughs> right? Don't you guys think so? But it's dramatic. This is a dramatic intro, isn't it? I mean, it, it basically says, you know about shrubs, don't you? There aren't any yet. It, it says, actually, there are no crops. There are no plants at all on this land. Why? Why are there no plants on this, on this land? There's no man yet. The, the earth needs a man to work it. What beautiful storytelling, what, what creativity we see from God and from Moses. In the beginning, God made a good world and a perfect world. And yet the author of Genesis finds a way to insert a sense of conflict into a story about a perfect place. How did he do that? It's crazy, but it's, but it's beautiful, isn't it? it? It tells us right off of the bat, hey, I'm going to start talking about the man. The earth needs a man to work it. He did this to draw our attention to that. The important, the important thing is this. The world needs people to shape it and to care for it. 
That's part of God's design. And, and what we find here is that the ground is waiting for the man to come to tend it. So before we are introduced, and, and by the way, you know, it, when, when you read through the scriptures, the earth is anthropomorphized like that over and over again. Here in Genesis 2, the ground is waiting for the man. You know, you, you read through the Bible and you hear like, look, if you don't praise God, the rocks are going to. It, when, you, when you get to Romans 8, you see the creation is groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. There's, there's something important about the creation. God consistently talks about it in this way. But before we're introduced to the man, we're introduced to his purpose. The creation actually tells us our purpose before any people were ever made. God made man to shape to care for and to bless the earth. That's, that's what we were put on the earth to do. But why bring up the need for a man? Well, I mean, storytelling-wise, there's only one reason, and that's because the man is about to show up. In, in this chapter, in this creation account, God only brings up the earthly creation to tell you, here comes the man. So here's verse 7. Then... The Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. So, so when God tells us where we came from, he, he does something interesting. He brings us both lower and higher than we really ever dreamed we could go all at once. So what do I mean by that? Well, he brings us lower than we thought we would go because he didn't form us out of a sliver of himself. He didn't form us out of gold. We hear later in this chapter, there was, there was gold there, right? Why couldn't he have made us of gold? He didn't, he didn't make us out of some special, valuable, shiny material. Instead, he picked up some dirt and, and there we were. The Bible makes it very clear that we are not the same substance of God. That's, that's probably the main point here. We are not the same as God. God is different from us. We don't recognize the divine in each other. We are different from God. Instead, we are made in the image of God, but we are not the same as God. God made us actually from the same substance as the earth. He made us out of dirt. Isn't that humbling? It's humbling. It brings you a little lower than, than you want to be. But on the other hand, who among us would ever dare to, to really believe that God had such an intimate hand in creating humans? Would you have ever imagined something like this? He doesn't just pick up a pile of dirt and say, poof, it's a man. He takes this dirt and he shapes it lovingly and masterfully. Before the man was given life, we're told that he was given a nose. God didn't breathe into a pile of dirt, did he? It says, but what does it say? He breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. So God took this dirt and he shaped it into a sculpture, into a beautiful sculpture. Not only did he shape the dirt, but he gave it his breath. He gave the dirt God's breath. I mean, God didn't just breathe on the dirt. He breathed the breath of life into the dirt. You, we, we sing about this often, actually. It, you know, we, we sing, it's your breath in our lungs. This is a line we sing often in our worship. 
But it doesn't simply mean that our breath belongs to God, that he's the rightful owner. It's true. If you were thinking of it that way, you weren't wrong. It doesn't only mean that, though. It, it means that when God created the man, his first breath came from God placing his mouth on the man's nose and breathing the breath of life into him. His lungs were filled not just with a breath that rightfully belonged to God, but actually God's breath. It's audacious. It's unbelievably intimate. It's beautiful that God would make people this way. And so, so God made a world that needed a man to, to, to work the ground. When he made this man, he shaped him out of the very ground that needed him. That's kind of beautiful too, isn't it? the connection that we have to the land. God shaped the man out of the ground that needed him. And God shaped him with his own hands and gave him life with his very own breath. And it challenges us to accept and love the bodies that God has given us rather than the ones that we wish we had. This challenges us to care for our bodies rather than to neglect them and harm them. And I think most importantly, it challenges us to recognize with new wonder the significance of ordinary people. How, how many of us are more inclined to look at a waterfall with wonder than we are to look next to us right now? Just image of God, breath of God sitting next to me. Every person, no matter who it is, is a marvelous creation. God gave the earth a man. God gave the man life by his own breath. And so we do not depend on ourselves. This is what this means. We do not depend on ourselves, and we do not make ourselves what we are. Instead, we depend on the God who made us. That's, that's who he made us to be when he made us the way that he made us. I say make us a few more times. Okay, I guess I better move to the second point here, which also talks about God making things. God made a garden. So God made a man, God made a garden. So, so now that there was a man to work the ground, what would God do with him? Here we are in verse eight. It says this, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. So, so God put the man right where he wanted him, in the garden that the Lord himself had planted. So let's learn a little bit about this garden. What, what does Moses want us to know? He, he's not going to tell us things he doesn't want us to know. You know, certainly we don't learn everything there is to know about the Garden of Eden. There's, this is nowhere near an exhaustive account. Was, this was heaven on earth after all. So a few short verses would never be enough to describe it. So rather than telling us everything there is to know about this garden, or honestly, even much detail at all, uh, the details probably for us modern readers are, are pretty opaque. Like, what's these rivers and Delium and Onyx and what in the world? <laughs> you know? but, but that's kind of like all the details we really get. He doesn't tell us much. Um, instead of telling us everything or even much detail at all, Moses, he tells us what he needs us to know, in, or he tells us what he needs to tell us in order for us to learn what we need to know. So, so as an aside, based on this point, this is actually a really important principle to keep in mind when you're reading the Bible. And 
one thing that's great about going through the book of Genesis is it makes reading the Bible so much easier. We're, we're setting the categories that we need for the rest of the Bible to make sense. The rest of the Bible is like, like Genesis is almost like the glossary. <laughs> like, what does the rest of the Bible mean? I don't know. Read, read Genesis and then you start to understand. Um, so th- this is a really important principle to keep in mind when reading the Bible. To believe the Bible is God's word is not to believe that it tells us everything there is to know or even everything we want to know. That's not what the Bible's here for. That's not why God gave it to us. Instead, the Bible tells us everything we need to know for life and godliness. The Bible is here to give us everything we need for life and godliness. And so this changes the Bible from an index that we search according to our own questions and asks us instead to approach it asking, Lord, what do you want to tell me? Whatever, whatever we're reading in the Bible, we can confidently say, God wants me to know this. God wants to give me life and power in the good news of the gospel through this. God, what are you trying to tell me? What do you want me to know? Here, God, what God tells us is that though he gave the land the man it needed to work it, God didn't leave the land. It wasn't like, okay, land made, man made. See you later, I'm going on vacation. No, he didn't do that. Look at verse 9. It says, The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food. So the man didn't cause the trees to grow. God did. And what, what grew out of this land that God was sustaining under the hands of the man? Every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food. Remember those phrases are going to come up in a more tragic story that we're going to hear soon. Every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food. God was taking care of this man. He was taking care of the land. God was there. Even though the, man need, the ground needed a man, it still needed God. As a part of creation, the man depended on God to grow his garden and to cause it to bring him food. We also see that there must be a spiritual component to this garden. It's not just that there were trees there, pleasing in appearance and good for food. Um, look, look further in the, in the ninth verse here. It says, including, so there were, you know, every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of garden, of the, the garden, there we go, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So these were two of the trees that were pleasing in appearance and good for food. They were here in the middle of the garden. Two of these trees don't really sound like the names of simple apple trees, do they? The, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's something else going on here. You see, this, this whole garden, it was not simply for the purpose of subsistence. It was beautiful, and it was spiritual, and it was paradise. This garden was heaven on earth, not just with physical and material needs being met. Everything was contained within this garden. Everything that the man needed that, that's what Eden means, actually. Eden means paradise. 
So Eden is heaven on earth. And so God did not make this world to be a place of struggle, isolation, and death. I mean, if you hear people talk today, that's commonly just kind of the way people talk. They, they wouldn't put it in such bleak terms, but, you know, a, a very naturalist scientist, even like, you know, watch David Attenborough films. Does anybody like his documentaries? Like all those nature documentaries? Does he see the lion's eat the, what are they, hyenas and stuff like that. Um, it, he taught, the, the story that he tells you is a story of a natural world that is based on struggle. Right? Yeah, and it seems like, hey, that's just part of the world. That's just part of how it is. God did not make this world to be a place of struggle, isolation, and death. He made it to be a place of blessing, life, and communion with him. That's the purpose. That's the purpose of his creation, to bring blessing, to bring life, and for us to have communion with God himself. And so actually, every temple structure that we see in the Bible calls us back to the structure of this garden that we see in Genesis. There's an outer place and there's an inner place. The inner place is God's dwelling where God lives. And out of the inner place flows the blessing of God, which stretches out to the four corners of the earth. Okay, we don't believe in four corners of the earth anymore, but you get the saying, right? That, that's actually what these four branches of the river of Eden are all about. Eden, Eden has this, this one river. And where does the river go? It, it flows out of Eden. And what happens? It flows in four directions. And in each of these four directions come these just like amazingly beautiful things. The river of Eden from the presence of God flows out to bless the whole world. So that, that's sort of the shape of all the temples. There's a, there's a central place where God lives. The presence of God lives. The image of God lives. Is there an image of God in the Garden of Eden? Well, sure, there's a man, isn't there? The presence of God, the image of God lives in the middle of the garden and out of the temple goes blessing onto all the earth. That's how God created the world to be. And this is a repeated pattern we see in the temples throughout the Bible. So God made the world to bless us and he made us to bless the world. We sort of depend on each other. There's a hierarchical thing that we are above creation. That's true. That's a biblical concept. But we don't domineer and dominate. We depend on the earth, actually, just as the earth depends on us. And so when we long for something better than the world that we live in today, we're not delusional and we're not kicking against reality. Actually, instead, we're longing for what God made this world to be. He made this world to be a place of perfect blessing, a place where we could dwell with God. He made it to be heaven on earth. That, that's what God made this world to be. Heaven isn't some place where you go sit in a cloud, bored. It's also not some place where you do whatever it is you like to do forever. Heaven is supposed to be here, actually. Heaven is God coming to us. So now, now it's, it's true that we have a longing for heaven on earth, but we also need to see that, that none of us are really creating or pursuing anything like Eden. We have this longing. We know something's wrong. We know that something has been lost, but we have to recognize what's going on in our own hearts. What we are actually pursuing is very different than what God created here. We got to come to terms with that, guys. 
Think about this. It, it, it would be truer to say, actually, that all of us are running away from heaven and that we're running into hell. It would be truer to say that we are running away from heaven and into hell. Think about it. To us, and I'm speaking especially to our American culture here, but kind of to humanity as a whole. To us, heaven is unbridled, consumeristic freedom. That's what heaven is, unbridled, consumeristic freedom. So, so we live our days trying to get as much as we can from the earth and from other people. We're, we're unfulfilled by our consumerism. And anybody feel con- fulfilled by your consumerism? It makes you feel just fantastic? No, we're unfulfilled by it. I think we all recognize that. But we're also hopelessly enslaved to it. This is, this is what we spend our days doing, being hopelessly enslaved to our consumerism. But when God made the earth, he made a place that was waiting for us to take care of it and to make it flourish but we spend our days desperately seeking fulfillment through things, through experiences, taking everything we can from the earth instead. To us, heaven is the place where earth and everything in it bend to meet our needs. Us in the center of everything and everything serving us. Genesis 2 tells us that heaven is a place where God defines and meets our needs And we find our blessing as we shape the earth for its blessing. How different, how different that is than the way that we're all inclined to living. So all of us here believe in our hearts that heaven is a place where we get everything we want without being contradicted or limited. But just as we see that knowing we were made by God keeps us from believing we can depend on ourselves. Knowing what God made us for keeps us from feeling we can live for ourselves. God made us to live for the good of the world, not to use the world for our own good. But until we have a better hope than pleasure, comfort, and autonomy, we will never be free to bless the world in the way that God has called us to. It won't be possible. You know, so, some of you may be thinking, you know, as, as I say, we all think this way. Some of you are like, no, no, I'm, I don't think that way. You know, I, I know that this is killing me. I know that I'm a slave to these desires. And yet, we're still slaves to these desires, aren't we? We still do the thing, don't we? We can't stop. We can't be better. We have to have a better hope. That's the only way. We have to have a better hope. So where can we find that hope? Is it a better way of living? Is it in self-sacrifice and self-improvement? Is it in discipline and good works? Let's look to our third point to see the real depths of the situation we're in so that we can hear God offer us true hope. Here's our third point. God made a covenant. So God made a man. God made a garden. In that garden, God made a covenant. Here's uh, verses 15 through 17. The Lord took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden. 
but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Remember that. It's going to come up again. What we see described here is what we call, in our tradition, the covenant of works. This is the covenant of works. We talked about this, you know, maybe a month or two ago. When God placed the man in the garden, he gave the man conditions. Adam was told to work and to wash over the land. In other words, it was his job to use his hands to bless the land and to protect it. And Adam was told to refrain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was given one thing he was supposed to do and one thing he wasn't supposed to do. This was the covenant God made with Adam. And and this is another way that the heaven on earth that God tells us about violates our cultural sense of what paradise must really be like. Because if heaven is a place where we're free to enjoy everything we want to enjoy without limits, well, restrictions must be hell. Telling me no must be hell. But here is Adam in paradise, heaven on earth, And this heaven has a restriction. In heaven, there's a restriction. So that's what I mean when I say we're running from heaven. We are running from our responsibility to the world and the people around us. We're also running from anything that says thou shalt not. Aren't we? But heaven has a restriction. So we're running from heaven when we run from restriction. Well, when we run from good restriction. Let's be honest there. There are bad restrictions too. Um, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It, it seems very arbitrary to a lot of people. Do you, do you ever have that reaction when you read this? It's like, dude, what's, what the heck? Don't eat from that tree? One of my favorite musicians has a whole song making fun of this, and, and he's wrong. Um, he's wrong about a lot of things. He's right about a lot of things, too. His music rocks, but, but he's wrong about that. It, it seems really arbitrary to a lot of people that God would do this. It's not arbitrary. It's a call to trust God as both the lawgiver and our soul's very definition of the word good. It's not an arbitrary thing. The tree is called the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, God was calling Adam to trust that God's commands were good and to say no to his need to decide for himself what was good and evil. If he were to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... That would be essentially what he would be saying. He would be saying, I want to know for myself. I want to be my own authority on this matter. I want the knowledge of good and evil to be mine. I don't want to trust you, God. I don't want to lean on you for this. And so God is saying, don't eat from that tree. It's there, but don't eat from it. Heaven is not independence and self-gratification, but heaven is oneness with our God. And hell is not rules and submission to the will of others, but it's lawlessness and separation from God and others. So the conditions of this covenant are work the land and refrain from eating of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, of good and evil. And then we're told about the consequences of the covenant. Every consequence or every covenant, it has its terms. And then it has what happens if you keep the terms? And what happens if you don't keep the terms? That's what a covenant is made up of. If if you want a more concise version, a covenant is an obligation, or it's uh, it's an agreement between people with obligations and blessings and curses, okay? 
So, so what are these consequences? If Adam breaks covenant with God, he will bring death into the world. We're told that explicitly here. If Adam breaks, breaks covenant with God, he will bring death into the world. And, and so Paul says this in Romans. I mean, it probably won't surprise anybody by saying, hey guys, guess what? Adam did break covenant. So here's, here's what Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. So, so we see that God's not just saying, listen, Adam, you're gonna die if you eat from this fruit. God is saying, this covenant is far-reaching. You are the man at this point. And whatever you do with this covenant will have far-reaching effects for everyone who comes from you. So if you broke covenant, death would come to everybody. Death in the garden story, it's not some metaphor for our biggest problems. But sometimes we can approach the Bible like that, right? Well, death really represents... No, no, no. Death represents death. Okay, it's bigger than physical death, but it's talking about death. The fact that our bodies stop working at some point. That's what it means in the Bible. The Bible can seem so pie in the sky sometimes when we talk about it, but it's not. It's talking about our reality that we really live in. Death is quite literally our biggest problem. That's what, that's what Ecclesiastes says. In, in chapter nine, like the, the author, the preacher is, is looking throughout the whole world and he's like, I saw an evil thing. No matter what happens, we all die. We all know that. We all go through our own bouts of, of being fearful about this, about being sad about this. Death isn't okay and it's not symbolic. The Bible is plain with us. It speaks in terms that match our experience rather than explain it away. So if we're going to have hope, guys, we have to have a hope that deals with death and death in the literal sense. It's the only kind of hope that's going to work for people who die. On the other hand, the tree of life was in the garden too. We're not told a lot about it here, but there are wide-ranging implications to this tree. A covenant has two sides, a blessing and a curse. We're hearing more about the curse because of what happens next. It's really more relevant at this point. But the tree is mentioned because the tree is where we're going to end up. So put a pin in that one. The tree is in the garden too. God didn't offer curse only. He offered blessing and curse. Blessing from covenant keeping, curse from covenant breaking. And so God is setting us up to understand that his plan was always to bless the entire world through a covenant-keeping man. That's what God wants us to know. But the head of the covenant had to be tested. He could obey and trust God, which would lead to life for him and all his descendants, or he could disobey and distrust God, making himself his own standard of good and evil. And what he chooses will affect the entire world, not just him. And unfortunately, we all know what happens next in chapter 3 of Genesis, don't we? Adam did not choose life. He chose to be his own standard of good and evil, not submitting to God. And in so doing, he brought curse into the world. He brought curse into the world that God made him to bless. What an irony. Go bless the world. 
And then he ends up cursing the ground instead. The ground that was waiting for him. I mean, man, these old-fashioned sounding statements, when you really know the scriptures, are so loaded with meaning. Cursed to be the ground because of you. Man, it just sounds so like there should be incense in the air. This is the ground that was waiting for the man. How could it be cursed because of him? How is this possible, guys? Now we live in a world in which the very idea of humanity, blessing the world, it, it seems ridiculous. It's, it's almost unbelievable. It, it seems like everything we do brings a greater burden on the earth. In fact, the birth rate in the developed world, it's, it's plummeted. And when people are asked why, consistently people my generation and younger, we answer, I cannot in good conscience bring more people into a world that seems itself to be dying because of people. How is this the world of Genesis 2? How did people drift so far from being the answer the world sought when it lacked a man to work it? The answer, it's going to come in more detail in a few weeks. But we all know basically, don't we, what happened. God made a covenant. Adam broke the covenant. And the most important question we can ask now is this, what will God do? What will God do? The rest of the Bible answers this question. We should read the Bible asking, what does God do when people bring curse to, the, to his good world? What does God do? We already know the answer, don't we? Adam was a covenant breaker, but God is a covenant keeper and a covenant maker. We are given this story so that we can know who we are and the way God made us to relate to him, to each other, and to his world before Adam sinned. And we're given the rest of the Bible so that we can see God working out his plan to bring rebellious sinners back into a good relationship with him, into a good relationship with the world, so that he can bring back a paradise like Eden to the earth. That's what the entire Bible is about. It would be easy at this point to respond to this creation story in a moral way. In fact, that's probably the most common way I've heard this taught it's also the first thing I tend to do, honestly, in my own inner monologue, as I read something like this. I see a good example. You know, Adam, Adam was meant to protect the world and to work it, and so I should work well and protect the earth too. Maybe your mind has gone there already. It may say, Adam was meant to trust God rather than acting as his own moral standard and his own God. Well, I, I guess I should just trust God's moral standard rather than my own. But is that why God gave us this story? God didn't write this before the fall. He wrote it after the fall. Did God give us this story to show us Adam acted this way, be different? Is that why it's here? It can't be, guys, because Adam did eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and nothing we do can ever change that. We are slaves to sin. 
because of Adam's sin. This, our, our thoughts, our actions, our desires, they bear witness to this every day if we're honest with ourselves. I'm a good person. No, no, you're not. I'm not. None of us are good people. And the more we try, the more it becomes obvious that we're not. We don't need to be better than Adam. Instead, we need a better Adam. That's what this is telling us. This is telling us what a covenant, what covenant was made, and it's foreshadowing a covenant keeper because we know our need for one. So, so I'm not going to close today by telling you good advice. Instead, I just want to leave you with some good news. Here's part of the good news. God was not surprised by Adam's sin. It, it wasn't like God set up Adam in the garden. Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God was like, well, there goes plan A. Let's see if I can come up with a plan B. That, no, this is not the biblical story. God wasn't surprised by Adam's sin, nor were his plans thwarted in the least. We're told in scripture, before God created even a single Adam, A-T-O-M. Okay, we're talking about the man named Adam. It, before God created a single Atom, he had already written the story that we're living in today. He'd already written it. And he had written this story as a rescue story. Okay, so for, to, to give you another term from our theological tradition, tradition, we heard today about the covenant of works. Before the covenant of works is the covenant of redemption, when God agreed with himself to save sinners, before he even made the world. Adam didn't ruin anything. He messed a lot of things up in, in our experience, but he, he didn't thwart God's plan. Everything is going according to plan, even the tragedies. Before God created a single Adam, he had already written the story we're living in today, and he had written this story as a rescue story. And so as we leave here to sin and to be sinned against and to suffer under the curse brought by Adam, hear this good news. Adam was the first man, but he wasn't the last. And Adam has joined us to sin. But while Adam was elevated from dust to the image and breath bearer of God, Jesus Christ, who is God himself, he came down from heaven to become flesh like us. Adam was made of what he came to work on. Isn't that beautiful? But it elevated him. It was a promotion. Jesus came in the form of those he came to work on. And he had to come down, down, down to get there. The good news is that the garden was the first heaven on earth, but it won't be the last. So in Revelation, we see that what began in a garden will end in a city and that this city will shine with the presence of God and that this city will have the tree of life which Adam forfeited through disobedience. Heaven is coming back to earth. Heaven has come back to earth in part today. You know, we don't, we don't need to just leave to, you know, be resigned to our sin. Adam joined us to sin, to Satan as our master. Christ frees us. Christ frees us. We have a sliver of heaven. We have an image of heaven. We have the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Where does it live now? It lives in the church. 
And ever since Jesus rose again, the kingdom of heaven has been breaking its way into the earth through the church, through the gospel, through the power of the spirit. One day it's going to come fully and this place will be heaven on earth. Finally, Adam was the first to bear the covenant of works, but he wasn't the last. He wasn't the last. Jesus was also tested, but not in a garden. While God gave Adam a perfect world to keep, Christ came to a fallen world to save it. While Satan tempted Adam while he was in paradise with an abundance of food, Satan tempted Christ while he was alone, fasting in the desert in a desolate place. But Jesus passed the test. Adam failed, but Jesus passed. What Adam broke, Jesus fulfilled so that we can now relate to God through grace based on Christ's obedience rather than our sin. Because Jesus obeyed conquering sin and death, his heavenly kingdom has found a home in the hearts of all who have faith. Jesus did not choose to be his own moral compass like Adam did. Instead, he said to his father, your will be done so that we can be freed by his spirit to do the same. We are not to look to Adam and say, how could I do better? We're to look to Christ and see that he did everything. And in looking to Christ, we are to be freed finally to obey. What's more, the heavenly kingdom is coming in a more tangible way than it ever has. And soon, Jesus said, I will come soon. I am coming soon. God will restore all of creation to its blessed state and he will cast all sin out of the earth. And when he does this, we will no longer find a man, the image of God in the middle of the garden. Instead, we will find God himself dwelling with us in the middle of the city. He's going to shine so brightly, we won't need a sun. He's going to be so present, we won't need a temple and we will have the tree of life which no one has ever eaten from yet. Friends, sin has lost its power. Death has lost its sting. How could that be? Because Christ is our covenant keeper, we can stop chasing hell and start living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.